You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. We are in our sermon series in the book of Acts, The World Turned Upside Down. As many of you know, the premise is that's what the gospel does. It's what it has been doing for years. It just it changes people. As it changes people, it just changes the world. And we see more of that this morning. As a matter of fact, I, that was a long text in which Brooks read. I, I initially was planning to preach a longer text, and as I was kind of getting into it, I read, I realized I kind of had to cut it off a little bit. Um, there was a lot going on. So um, what will feel like perhaps to you, um, like, hey, there's, there's more to the story, if that's your observation, from just continuing on, in reading in Acts 13, the answer is yes, there's more to the story, and we'll pick that up next week. And so, but we do have in front of us is a lengthy sermon by Paul, and um, it got me thinking um, as I was studying and reading, is that, have you ever thought you had known something, but like there comes a moment in your life where you realize you didn't know a thing? Uh, the older I get, the more I realize what I don't know. Here's a couple of examples of what I'm trying to get at. Uh, growing up, I was a Star Wars junkie. Now, growing up, I had three options, right? We got like um, The Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, and then um, A New Hope, right? That's all I had. But I, I, but we, I watched those nonstop. I, I loved the action, uh, the lifesaver fighting between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. Um, in Return of the Jedi, you got like these little Ewoks carrying these big rocks, throwing it at stormtroopers, and they're falling over everywhere. Uh, just the action. I just loved it. You get the Millennium Falcon either flying away from an enemy or flying to an enemy. Loved it. What is interesting about my experience with Star Wars is that I didn't understand the movies until my 30s. For the longest time, the movies for me were pure entertainment. Even today, you know, if I'm watching a movie, I just want to be entertained. I admit it. Don't care about the plot line. Excuse me. Even though I'd watched those movies hundreds of times each, I finally began to see in my 30s, kind of beyond like the fight scenes. I began to see the battle between good and evil and the complexity between the battle of good and versus evil. Perhaps I did not see the greater message of the movies the first 500 times I watched them, but something eventually clicked kind of on that 501st time I watched Star Wars. I can test this same idea against um, a religious experience. Uh, grow, growing up, I grew up Catholic, and we, we went to Mass every Sunday. We said the Lord's Prayer, or, or the Our Father. Every week, we'd say it aloud corporately. And for so many years, I was speaking into an empty space. The words had no meaning. I just recited it because, Why? What everyone else did, you, you were told what to do until my 20s. And one day I recited it, and I realized I was reciting it to God. Even though I had said the Lord's Prayer more times than I had watched Star Wars, which is actually probably hard to believe, eventually it clicked. 
I wasn't speaking into the open space. I was praying to the Lord. The gospel message can be treated the same way as my examples, Star Wars and the Lord's Prayer. I say the following not to cast doubt, but to call out a reality. A person can hear the gospel message their entire life, but never truly believe the gospel message. A person can faithfully go to church every single week, but still not believe the gospel for their own life. I spent years preaching the gospel message to youth, and I always knew there was two people in the room, two, two, two groups of people in the room. There were those who heard what I was saying, and with youth, that's even a questionable statement. But you had that group of people, and then you had those who truly knew and believed what I was saying. Paul encounters a similar dynamic in Acts 13. Nothing has changed from the first century to the 21st century, it seems to me, reading this text. For their entire life, Jews were taught the scriptures. They were told about this coming Messiah. And when he arrived, some believed, and many did not. This morning, as we look at this passage, I want each of you to test your heart with this question. This question. Do I believe the gospel? Do I believe the gospel? I am not trying to patronize you with this question. Again, I'm not trying to cast out. I actually, I desire the opposite outcome. If you do not believe the gospel, then may the Lord cause you to see the gospel from the scriptures by repenting of sin and receiving forgiveness of sins from God's mercy and grace. For others, I desire to see your affections for Christ grow because of what you read in God's word. In particular today, Acts 13. Applying the gospel is not a one-time event. You must continually meditate on the gospel, soak in the truth of the gospel, and apply the gospel message directly to your life every single moment of every single day. Think about it this way. When I say Redemption Hill Church is a gospel-centered church, I'm not trying to slap on a trendy tag. I'm not trying to like, hey, we got some space on the website to fill, so what do we, what do we want to say? Oh, we're just gospel-centered. Seems to be what's buzzing right now. Let's do that. No. Redemption Hill truly believes the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is why this church exists. The moment we cease to make the gospel the primary message and priority, the moment that ceases is the moment we close the doors. What fueled the movement that turned the world upside down in Acts is the gospel message. Without these radical disciples of Jesus Christ, they had nothing. But with Christ and with this gospel message, they had everything they needed. So keep the question in front of you as we look at what Paul says about the gospel message in our passage. Last week, we saw our world travelers, Paul and Barnabas, set sail from Antioch to Cyprus. Right? This is 
We said, said last week, this is like Paul's first missionary journey. He's going out. This morning, we see them traveling from Cyprus to ultimately uh, to another town called Antioch, but located in a different region called uh, Pisidia. There was another person with Paul and Barnabas, John Mark, right? You might have caught that in your reading. And for some unknown reason, John Mark leaves Barnabas and Paul and heads back to Jerusalem. Luke only mentions the separation and then moves on. Now, this is just an FYI, what's going to come ahead. We will encounter John Mark again in Acts 15, and then I will try to make some sense of like his sudden appearance. Like They're all buddies, they're all hanging out. They're all talking about the gospel and preaching the gospel. Now, like, John Mark's gone. Like, what happened? We'll talk about that in weeks ahead. I want you to note from our text that Paul and Barnabas are venturing out beyond Jerusalem, but they are preaching to a familiar audience. They are preaching to ethnic Jews and non-ethnic Jews who converted to Judaism. So naturally, they found themselves at where? The synagogue. This pattern is not unusual as we read Acts. As Paul traveled from town to town, he would immediately first go to the synagogue and preach. I'll talk more about why that's the case next week. In verse 15, we read Paul was was invited to speak, right? He's like, hey, come on. Perhaps Paul's dress, which probably would have still distinguished him as a rabbi, caused people to be like, hey, let's get that guy, let's get him to preach at the synagogue. It's likely Paul also was still kind of entitled to speak because of his past um, religion and Judaism, right? They didn't have cell phones and emails to be like, hey, did you hear what happened to Paul? (laughs) Word traveled slowly back then. Paul's invitation to to speak reminds me of of a personal story. Uh, There was a point in my life when I did a considerable amount of missions work overseas. Like you get on the airplane and do a bunch of short-term missions trips. After I'd gone on a trip to Africa, someone from my high school had asked me, hey, would you come and share about your experience serving in Africa? Uh, that particular school, which is Catholic, uh, they were doing this, this charity drive. They were raising money for clean water for a particular village in Africa, and they saw that their mission and kind of what I, what I did kind of paired up, and they wanted me to kind of encourage the kids to give and be involved in providing clean water to individuals in Africa. Now, I was a Protestant in the middle of a Catholic school, right? They had no idea what was coming. (laughs) They had no idea. They had no clue that I came to share the message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Only faith in Christ saves you, I told them. And yes, please, please, please donate your time, your money, your talents to providing clean water for those who need clean water in this particular country in Africa. Please do that. But as you do that, remember that you can only be saved by God's lavish grace through faith. I told them, them, please see the supreme importance of living water as you give physical water. After I got done speaking, there was a, a smattering of applause, I assume from the Protestants who attended the Catholic school. Everyone else was just trying to process, what did this guy just say? I can't save myself? 
When the rulers of the synagogue invited Paul to speak, I think they had no clue what kind of encouragement he was going to give. In an attempt to understand what Paul says to the synagogue, I want, I want to look at verses 17 to 39 with two primary headings kind of placing on top of this text. The first is the method. What is the method of his message? Like, how did he go about preaching? The second one is meaning. What did he mean when he preached? What's behind everything he was saying? So we've got method and meaning. And then in light of what we read in God's Word, I'll ask the same question that I already posed to you. Do you believe the gospel message? So how did Paul and Barnabas communicate the message of salvation? Well, they relied on the Scriptures. We will see in Acts 17, Paul takes a different approach when trying to persuade the Athenians of the gospel. He actually quotes their own prophets. Here, Paul shoots out the Scriptures like a water cannon. Paul knows his context, and he's going to communicate the gospel with the context in mind. In particular, he is speaking to a bunch of Jews who know their Bible. We've already seen this with Peter in Acts 2 through 4, but it's an important point to double back on. Here's a quick rundown of what Paul specifically quotes. We got Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. We got Isaiah 55, 3, all in this, this sermon. Psalm 16.10, Isaiah 29.14, we got Isaiah 49.6, we got Isaiah 42.6. What's the point? While there is a sense that the gospel has been handed down orally, especially during a time and culture where like illiteracy was through the roof, people couldn't read and write. Nonetheless, the message was rooted in the written scriptures. The gospel message must be rooted in what God has revealed in the Scriptures. And there are, there are various reasons why. I think God has chosen to reveal what He has said about the Gospel in the written Word. Here's a silly example to kind of make my point. Um, I'm sure some of you, uh, at some point in your life, have played the telephone game, or at least you participated in that activity, right? Like you get a bunch of kids, they all get in a circle, Right, And then you whisper into the first person's ear a particular statement. And that child or youth or adult, if you still play the telephone game, passes it down, whispers into the next person's ear, and so forth and so on, going all the way around the circle. And here's the problem. You, the more people you add, <laughs> you create greater confusion in the end. What we find is that when the last person receives the statement, it hardly sounds like the original. But what if there was a way to constantly ensure the purity of the message? What if there's a way to ensure that as the message is handed down, it remains intact? For Paul and for us, the Bible ensures the message stays on target. Yes, there is a place for oral tradition and oral reception of the Word of God, for sure. But the oral reception of the Word of God is connected to the written Word of God. In 1 Corinthians uh, 15, verses 3 and 4, uh, we, see how we see this connection between what is spoken and what is written. And Paul says, For I deliver to you, 
as of first importance, like this is the most important thing that I'm going to deliver to you, and I've received it from somewhere else. So he's, gonna, he's talking about preaching here. And here's what he says, that Christ died for our sins, what? In accordance with the Scriptures. This written book testifies to the fact that I'm speaking to you right now that Christ died. And then he continues, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. In accordance to who? Not Paul, not Apollos, not Peter. According to the Scriptures. For us, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Son of God is a method of good gospel proclamation. Not only is it a good method, but it is the method of faithful gospel proclamation. So let's now talk about the importance of verbally communicating the gospel from the scriptures. Acts 13 seems to be the first recorded sermon by Paul. It's not to say he hasn't preached prior. This is the first recorded one that we have in our Bibles. I have a couple thoughts on this seemingly mundane point. In Acts 13, we read how the city was gathered to hear the word of God, verse 44. We'll get into that next week. Paul says it was necessary for him to speak the word of God, verse 46, again next week. Luke narrates in verse 48 that the Gentiles were glorifying God because of the word of God. What's in view here? What's in view here is that the message of the gospel from the Old Testament was verbally communicated. I, I have experienced and heard plenty of stories where people are looking for the right church, right? Many of you have been in that position before. And people have come to me and say, hey, Pastor Sean, what's the right church? Well, I say, first and foremost, here. Uh, but if it's not here, i got two things I want to say to you, right? Just two. First, go to a place where the Word of God is opened and preached. Okay? That's one. And just one more after that. Make sure the gospel is clearly communicated. Everything else, worship style, how people dress, all up in the air, whatever. Those two things, though. The Bible is opened and preached. Make sure the gospel is clearly communicated. If a church does not do those two things, keep looking. Just keep looking. There's a second thought I want to communicate from this passage. Um, There is a place for men to be set apart to preach the gospel. Scripture makes this plain, and Paul was clearly set apart to preach the gospel from a position of leadership. But I must say this. Gospel proclamation happens in your workplace, right? Happens in your home, at the coffee shop with your friend. You should never underestimate the power of God to use you to share Christ with another human being. Paul preaches the gospel in the synagogue, hoping, believing that God is going to save some so that they, those in sitting and listening to Paul preach the gospel, are going to go from the synagogue to the streets and tell others about the gospel. One of the reasons why we're going through the book of Acts is so that this truth would hit you and me over and over and over again. That we not only believe that God has an intention to use us. We would allow God to use us. So as the method we see from Acts 13, the scripture is the foundation for telling others about Jesus, and we need to open our mouths and speak to others 
about the gospel, when we can use the scriptures. So what are the details of Paul's message about Jesus, right? But the method, now what's the meaning? On Wednesday evening, I was going for a run on a treadmill at the Y while, while rereading this passage. I kept trying to discern how long, uh, how much I should take away from this passage and how do I succinctly say, you know, we've got such a long text. Uh, what's, what are some of the key takeaways from Paul's sermon? What are the details? And then it struck me, this sermon is all about God. It's all about what God has done to redeem his people. It's not about Paul. It's not even about Israel or the Gentiles. It's about God. It's, it's fascinating that the flow and structure of this sermon is similar to what we read in Acts 7. Do you remember Acts 7? It was the stoning of Stephen. Stephen gives this wonderful sermon. Once again, going back to the Old Testament to show this is all about Jesus. He was stoned from what he preached and who was, who was present. Paul was there. And now we see Paul doing the same thing. Complete 180. Now we have Paul saying, your life and the meaning of your life, it's all about God. Here's what I want you to see and how it can shape your understanding of the gospel. As we've seen already, Paul quotes the Old Testament, but he also tells us about what, has, what God has done throughout history. In other words, Paul doesn't quote an Old Testament passage indiscriminately, but he understands how the passage fits into the greater plan of redemption. He shows how Scripture and history fit together. And so Paul lays out God's plan of redemption by going back to the beginning of the Bible. When Israel were slaves in Egypt, what did God do? He led them out of it, verse 17. And then when Israel was whining and complaining in the wilderness, what do we read about God? This is, this is like the funniest line. He put up with them in the wilderness. Verse 18. <coughs> Fast forward a bit. And Israel has received their inheritance, but they come to be spiritually and morally blind, and they wander away from God who gave them the land. Then what do we read? God gave Israel judges until Samuel the prophet, verse 20. And then Israel complained about not having a king, so what happened next? God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, God removed him, God raised up David to be their king, verse 21 and 22. Before I go any further, do you see any hints about how Paul is articulating the gospel? He keeps talking about what God has done. Listen, I, I say this because I need to remind myself, <clears throat> and perhaps you, that when we talk about the gospel, whether it's throughout history or your personal life, we need to look to God. We talk about God. That your testimony of salvation is not about what you have done. It is about what God has done to give you the testimony to share. The message of salvation is always about what God has done. Anything else we share simply points back to the fundamental truth. God has done it. Here's an observation directly from the Greek text. With an exception in verse 21... God is the subject of every main clause. 
God is the subject of nearly every verb in this sermon. After walking through several key moments in the Old Testament, Paul sets his gaze directly upon the person of Jesus Christ. I imagine Paul saying with sobriety to the Jews, and though they found him, in him, no guilt worthy of death, imagine them hearing that. Everybody knows Jesus wasn't guilty. He didn't deserve that. It's not a secret. They still asked Pilate to execute him. And Jesus was executed. All of history, history that we read in the Bible or in a high school textbook, has been marching toward the cross. But what did God do? Verse 30. God raised him from the dead. What is the point of Paul ad nauseum saying God did this, God did that, God raised Jesus from death to life? Paul rose to preach in the synagogue because he wanted to show that all events, every passage, every promise either points to Jesus and what he has done or is about Jesus. It's about what Jesus has done to redeem his elect people. The plan of salvation is all of God's doing. God saved Israel from slavery. God saved Israel from itself by giving them judges and kings. And it's God who saves souls by having faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul quotes Psalm 1610. I already mentioned it, but here it is for us to read. You will not let your Holy One, see corruption. Paul has to highlight the resurrection as the culmination of what God has done in history. The resurrection was a vindication by God that every word Jesus said and deed he performed was proof of his identity as the Messiah. There is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then there is no Christianity. You cannot preach the gospel without preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians about the same point. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then, the, then there is nothing we have to preach. And not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. To bolster his argument, Paul says that the great King David died and he's like still buried in the ground. Remember David? You all love David. And where is he right now? Peter made the same argument earlier in Acts. But Jesus died and rose from death to life. Therefore, how much greater is Jesus than this great King David? Jesus is uniquely set apart. Jesus was able to accomplish more in just a few moments than David could in his entire life. You would think that up to this point, Paul would like take his foot off the gas a little bit. But he does not. There's more to the message 
of Christ. He does the unthinkable. He goes after the law of Moses. Like, you're not supposed to touch that. And he goes right after it. Listen to this in verses 38 and 39. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. It's truly stunning. The cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ secured forgiveness for anyone who has faith in the cross and resurrection. What a powerful message. What a powerful result that is. Just stop and think about that for a moment. Apart from faith in Jesus, forgiveness of your sins is impossible. Think of it on a, on a human level for a moment. Even between two people who love each other deeply, there can be trouble confessing and forgiving. Why? Because our sin wants to keep condemnation. Sin wants to oppress you with shame. Sin wants to keep you from being reconciled to the other person. If this is true about our our relationships here on earth, how much more does your sin affect your relationship with an utterly holy God? You can try to keep yourself from sin, but you will fail. You could turn to another religion, but you will only find emptiness and lies. You could try to avoid the topic of sin, but you will still know deep down sin is crouching at the door. Want to try personal enlightenment? You will only discover that you lack the inability. You have the inability to make yourself right. There's no way you can make yourself right. The only way to be forgiven is through faith in what Christ has done. Paul's like, the law of Moses can't do that for you, fellas. Your own works can't do that for you. You will fail. You must look to another. Your forgiveness rests on the certainty of Jesus' resurrection. The bodily resurrection of Christ authenticated his identity as the promised Messiah. It corroborated the truthfulness of every word he spoke. It vindicated him as the righteous one of whom death and hell could not hold. It anticipated his ascension and and enthronement at God's right hand. You do not see this in the English Standard Version of the Bible, but the word free in verse 39 literally means justified, which I think is the right way to translate that word in order to understand this particular passage. Of course, we're, we're free because of what God has done in Christ. We can go to Galatians and make that point real quick. But here, I like the word justified. I love what Martin Luther, the 16th century German reformer, said about the entire book of Acts, but I think his statement also applies here. We must all be justified alone by faith in Jesus Christ without any contribution from the law or help from our works. This doctrine is the chief intention of the book and the author's principal reading, reason for writing. I think we see that in Paul's sermon. 
in Acts 13. He's preaching the gospel. I want to end with these probing do you questions. I'll begin with the question I already submitted to you. Do you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you read the gospel throughout the entire Bible? Which is what Paul is trying to show the Jews in the synagogue. Do you tell others about the gospel? Last question. Do you see that the redeeming nature of the gospel is all about what God has done? If you do, you have much reason to rejoice. You have much reason to celebrate. Even the songs that we sang earlier, like in this world, there is going to be troubles and trials. But because of all, because of what God has done, we have nothing to fear. God is for us, and he has done it for us through Christ. Let's pray.